Romans 5, 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into, uh, into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, it's what you do that counts, isn't it, in life? It's what you actually do. It's when you go to work, you don't just sit there. Like if you're a chef, Andrew's a chef, if he went to work tomorrow and he just thought about the food he was going to cook and then just ate everyone else's food, that wouldn't count. He's got to do his job. If you're a nurse and you just think about giving people medication, you're going to have a problem because, well, they need it. What you do does actually matter and count. When we won the uh, grand final in under-16s cricket, crowning glory, we, we didn't just think about it. We actually went out there and played far better than we ever thought we could. It's what you do that counts. But today, what we're going to see is when it comes to salvation, that idea needs a serious overhauling. Because our actions do matter, but when it comes to God, we have a problem with the way we think and the way we uh, act and everything about us that needs a complete overhaul. And so we're going to be challenging that idea of it's what you do that counts when it comes to earning a relationship with God today. And we're going to be, going to be doing it by uh, that video that you saw there of uh, the son, the prodigal son. And as brilliant as that video is, it has a problem. That's not the whole story. There are two sons. There are two sons and it's just as important that we see the other son and even more important, we get our heads around the father. And so that's what we're going to do for the rest of the day today. And so we're going to read that passage, uh, uh, Luke 15, 11 to 32. Daniel's going to come back up and read that for us now. And then we're going to consider that. So feel free to grab a Bible if you haven't got one already, because it'll be helpful to have that in front of you as we continue in it. But let's have a look at this great story of how the Bible actually tells us these two sons uh, interact with their father. Thanks, Daniel. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got, all, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, 
There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Daniel. Now, as uh, we've heard already, we're spending nine weeks on discipleship. If you're not sure what that word means, it means following someone. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower of Jesus. So we're spending nine weeks considering what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're going to do that, there's only one place you can start where how that relationship actually happens. Grace. Grace is the thing that frames the rest of this series that speaks into all of uh, the topics that we look into and it's what we need to make sure that today we have our heads around completely. And if we start to grapple with these two sons, grace comes alive for us. Now, before we do anything else, let's just... Get it out in the open. What do we say grace is? You may know it. You may uh, know it very well. And it's enormously important that you remind yourself constantly of it. If you don't have any idea of it, this is what we'd say grace is. It's come down on the screen. If uh, George, you can just flick that one. Thank you. An undeserved gift that costs the giver, not the receiver. That is what grace is. An undeserved gift. That costs the giver and not the receiver. And so we're going to see what this looks like. And what I would love to challenge you with today is that you grab hold of grace. If you haven't yet, that today is the day your whole way of thinking about everything changes. 
That's a big call, isn't it? But it's a call at some point we all need to make. And for all of us to keep reminding ourselves so we don't abandon the thing that saves us. So let's get into it and let's have a look at this uh, passage. You'll see it in the the outline there if you're following on in in the booklet. There's the younger son, the older son, um, and then us and God. And I want to see how the father responds to these sons as we go through. But as we kick off, we see this younger son, what an insult. Verse 12, the young one, the younger one said to the father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. See, what that son has done, if we just, on the surface, you see how just that's, a bit greedy. But when we kind of think about it a bit further, he's saying, Dad, I don't want you. I want your stuff. I want your things. Now, as a son, he's, he's going to be an heir to a third of the estate. That's what would have been. And his elder son gets the two thirds, gets, gets the most of it. That's, that's how it works out. And he's saying, really, you can be dead because I want what I get after you die. That, I, I want your stuff. Now, the readers of this uh, amazing story that Jesus told, the hearers of him saying it, and, and that culture, the response would have, of course, been, well, the father drove him out, kicked him out of the family, disowned him for being so disrespectful to his father, who he is going to give his inheritance, well, no longer does he receive it. He is out. That's what you'd expect. But this isn't any normal story. The father, in verse 12, divided his property between them. The father tears his life apart for this son. He maintains his love for him and bears the agony of him saying, I want your stuff and not you, and I'm going to go away with your stuff. That sets a pretty dark tone for the relationship doesn't it and then we see the shame of this son and that's why i really like that video and the way they are very creative in the way they tell their stories and you saw the shame of that son come through didn't you in the way that he just realized he'd thrown it all away he took everything of his, his dad could give him and he wasted it the shame of it 13 to 16 Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I'm going to do whatever I want with freedom. I'm going to take it from whoever I can, my dad. And then it all goes pear-shaped and he's in his shame. And he realises that in verse 17 where it says he comes to his senses. See, he's not just with the pigs physically. He's put his whole life in the sty. After his great insult and shame... He finally kind of reassesses and comes up with a plan. A plan 
that acknowledges how rubbish he has been. He says, he thinks about his father and who works for his father and he says in verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I'll go back to my father and say to him, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He's acknowledging what his father, in many other instances, you'd expect to have happen. Well, you're no longer my son. That's what I've done. That's kind of what I deserve. I'm a fool. I'm sure those words were ringing true. I don't deserve. Imagine the walk back in his shame. Imagine that journey. And then we have his father and how he responds. It's a beautiful picture the way he says, I couldn't just stand there, I jumped up and I went to him. That's what he does in this passage. While he was still a long way off in verse 20, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. How spectacular is that picture of this dad? He hugged him. Now there's a myth going around Trinity Grove that I don't like hugs. If you haven't been before, that's been told. I don't like hugs. That is a myth. I like hugs that mean something. I'm not throwing them around willy-nilly. This hug means something. Right? This hug is a hug where it says a lot. This is a hug in which a father is saying, you are back with me. I'm in relationship with you. Everything's dealt with. These are the hugs that I like. You see, he gave him his robe. He gave him a ring. He gave him sandals and a fattened calf. Now, if it's the best robe, whose robe do you think it's likely to be? Well, his dad. He's saying, everything that I have is yours again. I'm putting you back in that place. He gives him a fattened calf, not just some meat, and meat they didn't always eat because, you know, it's a special occasion. You know, it's not like today where every meal is a special occasion. Meat was a one-off time kind of meal. Here, it wasn't just meat, it was the fattened calf. It was when the boys go out and get their deer and come back and roast it and we all get to eat that deer that I like to do. It's when we had our... um uh, when did we do the spit roast? I can't remember. What event was it? Compelled. Compelled, yeah, a weekend together. We made a big deal about that, didn't we? And we got Anton came with a massive uh, lamb that was um, uh, fresh and cooked and it was delicious. It was a celebration. The best fattened calf. Because he's back. This is grace. There is nothing at all, that you can say this son deserves from his father. Any of this. 
This is love and forgiveness. You know, what's this story often called? You're out to him. What's the story often called? It's called the what? The prodigal son, because it's prodigals be extravagant and outrageous, and that's what the son was. But actually, the more extravagant and lavish is God, who the father's representing. He is extravagantly embracing his son back. That is just so lavish and out of kilts with everything you'd expect to happen. This love and acceptance is free. He didn't even get to really say his speech, never mind do things to earn his uh, father's favour back. It was there. What's the most prodigal thing that you've ever done? Good or bad? How extravagant was it? When we compare that to this type of love, to be honest, it's really not that extravagant. So when we say grace in our definition is undeserved favour, we see that here. It's that type of of way that we are saved. But there's another son. And this son helps us see that there is a cost. This son also helps us see that there's another complete way to reject God. And for those of us that are Christians that come to uh, a church regularly, we're going to end with considering that we can be a little bit elder brother-ish if we're not on top of it. See, look at this son when he finds out what's just happened. He's burning, in the second point, with anger and, and insults his father just like the younger son. Verse 25. Let's just read that whole section of 25 to 30. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never Gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's so angry. He's been home all this time. His brother's returned. His brother, let's not forget, has taken his money his inheritance, and squandered it. Because he's come, he's an heir again. He's now back in the fold. It's a massive insult to the father to not go in, isn't it? The son goes out, the younger one, the older son refuses to go into his father's celebration. The father comes out to him and pleads with him. It's all upside down. It's a real shock, this, this son. He's not coping. 
And you see, this is really important to the story because Jesus is actually talking, if we see the bigger context of this passage, he's talking to those that seek to please God in everything they do, the Pharisees. And here he is, talking about a son who is angry because he's been good and he's not getting what he deserves because he's been good. You see, what he does is he makes his case and his case to his father is not you've been gracious, it's I've done good, so where's my stuff? Have a look, verse 20, 29. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobey your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat. He's saying, I actually deserve your favour. One of the tragedies for churches all around the world is that there's sometimes people, all in them, seeking to earn their place with God when that's not how we do it. We don't earn favour with God. And this son confronts us with that. That to be good to do the things that are supposed to be pleasing with a hard heart is, is completely the wrong way. See, I'm good. It's what you do that counts. And look, here I am. And where's the justice? What's this son done? He's treating the father kind of like the other son in a different flavour. He wants what he's entitled to. Not because... He's just the son and he deserves to be free, but because he's earned it with his actions. The younger son was all about self-pleasure and freedom and pursuing that, which at generations after generations, people make that case. And the older son, well, he wanted the same thing from the father, but he goes about it a different way. He's trying to earn it by what he does. And generations after generations seek to do that as well. And often, when we're so confused, we go from one to the other, don't we? We live the way that the first son did and that doesn't work out. And so then we say, okay, I'll be good. I'll try and do all these things and I'll just be nice to people. Or, okay, God, I'm going to do these things for you. And then we get all mixed up. And in the end, what we're not doing is understanding grace. Not understanding that what God wants us to see is no matter what you think, how you do things, it's about me coming to you. So look how the father responds to his son. This father, geez, he's had a hard run with his sons, hasn't he? Um, what does he say in verse 31? You selfish little ungrateful brat. No. He doesn't. He says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Everything I have is yours. My son, your brother was dead. My son, I'm saying everything is yours. 
Do you want to stay out here? Not in the banquet. Do you want to be dead? And not alive with us that I'm saying everything is yours. Do you want to do that? That's where this story of the two sons ends. The one who everyone thinks is the worst when you look at it on the surface because he doesn't do good stuff at all, wasted everything, he's in the banquet. And this son is out of his own choice. And we don't know what he does. Purposely, we are being challenged to see that even if you wrap yourself up in a whole bunch of good, you could still be out in the cold. We need to hold these two sons together because if we're to truly understand grace, we need to understand that there was a great cost. But the cost isn't you needing to do good. These sons didn't do it. The cost was to the the father. That is... These two sons, they confront us. They challenge us to see. You can rebel against God and go crazy and wild, breaking everything that he wants. You can even deny him if you like. Or you can try and get control, wrapping it up in good so you're impressive, so God will do good to you. If religion is defined by, and what religion actually is, you earning favour with God, doing things to make God happy. Jesus has just said, that will never, ever work. It will never, ever work. Because your heart is far from me. We cannot leverage God. I feel sometimes... That having some kids means I have to work that leveraging out because whenever you're asked to do something, it's, well, if I do that, how about then I get to play extra half an hour of tech? Or um, if I clean my room, how about we can have double dessert? Or something. It feels like a constant, and I remember doing that as a kid. Did you used to do that? All of you? Did you ever tell your parents, okay, I'll do that if you ask me, but then can I have this? Yeah, we all did it. If you're saying you didn't, you're a liar. I'll just put it out there, okay? We all do that. Imagine, imagine if we rethought how grace looks and it's got nothing to do with leveraging God. Because that's what Jesus is wanting us to do. You see, love is missing from his boys. His father's son, he's showing them by his actions. Grace is about love. Not holding grudges and people account for themselves. And that's the challenge we are seeing today. So when we think of us, you, and God the Father, we need to understand grace on the screen there. You see it from both sides. If only the younger son had a loving brother, a loving older brother, who said to his dad, I'll go and get him. That was no good. Dad, doesn't matter what he's done. 
I'm going to go and get him and I'm going to drag him back. I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to pull him back to, to us. He's, our, he's my brother. He's your son. I'm not going to let him go. If only he had a brother like that. If only we had a brother like that. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, our brother, died for us. We do. Jesus does everything for us and brings us back to God. This love, this undeserved gift, was a great cost to God the Father and his Son. It took his very life, it took Jesus to face the wrath of all of our sin and rejection of him, our heart's brokenness, not just the actions that go out there, even our attempt to do good to earn God's favour. We have one who goes before us. So Jesus is called the great shepherd, the one who comes out and gets us. We need to clearly understand grace. Romans 5, 1 to 11, which we read earlier, highlights that in many different ways. Jesus dies for us when we deserve to die. Our brother gives us peace when we deserve wrath. Our brother is so that God can declare us righteous when we should be declared unrighteous. And it's also grace is how we're saved. By a God who does everything when we don't deserve him to. See, we can be like that other brother. Um, and sometimes it comes out in moments when things are taken away. When the pain we face in our own life, when the pain we face from others around us, or the things in life that we thought were all going to work out and they're taken away and we go back to God, it's all your fault, I don't deserve this. It's the time that we're challenged not to be that other brother. I don't know if you saw uh, the Egyptian lady get interviewed about her uh, husband dying. Anyone see that or hear about that story? It was an amazing story of a Christian lady who was being interviewed. There's a picture of the interviewer there. Uh, if you can find it there, Georgie, it's in the PowerPoint somewhere. It'll come up. I just want to show you the interviewer's face. It should be there. On, if you slide through the screens, it should be there. There he is. That's her on the left being interviewed, and that's the guy in the studio. And she has just said, I need to tell you, I forgive them. My husband, I'm jealous of him. He's in a better place. I wish I was there with him. He's been killed. Family's all around. That interviewer, the guy in the studio there was sitting just listening and then as she said, I forgive them, he's leant forward and he's just, you can see his mind's clicking over at 100 miles an hour thinking, what is she saying? He says, I I forgive him. I'm jealous of where my... Uh, father, uh, my husband is and I am so proud of him. The interview stops 
zooms in on that guy there like that and he stays there for 10 seconds not saying a word because he's dumbfounded. And he says, these Christians are made of different stuff or something to those words. He said, I couldn't do that. If it was my father, I would never say those words. It was a powerful testimony of someone when everything has been taken away has said, God's grace is enough and I know where my husband is. Spectacular story. We need to understand grace this way. But we don't just need to know it. We need to accept it truly in our hearts and minds. And that's what I said earlier today that we all need to do. No longer ever come to church thinking, this is helping me with God. Jesus helps you with God. Today is the day to say, I humbly trust in you. To say, all I have is to see what Jesus has done and embrace that and to live for him. Can I encourage you to do that today? Even if you don't understand it all, but you know that's what you need. Next Friday, over the next four weeks, we're going to be thinking that through in our life course. We're going to be thinking it through. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Whether you you can't quite make that decision yet because you can't figure it out, but you know you want to figure out this grace thing and this Jesus thing a bit more. The life course is a fantastic way to do it in our um, a new, new midweek space in our house, in the in the, um, in the shed there. Um, come along, and it's a great time. That video is actually I kind of stole a bit of the life course with that video, and we have some videos, some food, and we we spend time together, um, just just discussing what life's all about. And you don't have to say a word; you can come and just consider. That's kind of how it's designed, or you can give some opinions uh, if if you like. But it's a great opportunity, whether you're young in your Christian faith, whether you're wrestling with it, or you're just intrigued. It's a really great time to wrestle with that and can I encourage you to do that. But as we finish today, can I get back to what I said earlier? Um, Tim Keller has a book called The Prodigal God. Uh, if you haven't read that book, I reckon you need to go and buy it straight away. It's a great book that, some, that just explains this extraordinary passage. And he's the one that I got the phrase of, Christians need to resist the way to be elder brother-ish. And it's a really helpful thing for us as those who have embraced grace. We know we're saved by grace, but we need to resist those moments where we are a little bit like that older brother. Where we're saved by grace, but so much of what we do is thinking where we deserve stuff or we're justified or we do things to earn God's favour. And we need to remind ourselves constantly over and over again Asking God to help us to see that clearly. Because if we don't, Satan would love us to come to church every week, say we believe in grace and trust in Jesus, but spend our uh, days week by week just getting us to think, yeah, but you should do some more for God so he is happier with you. So that maybe that will guarantee your salvation. We need to be challenged by that. Uh, on, on the screen you'll see our whole series, all the topic of our series uh, coming up there 
There it is. We started with grace. Now we've got all these other topics in this series devoted to Jesus next week. I'm going to be talking on grounded in scripture. Jack's going to be talking on it. Coming to church, belonging to a church, generous in the way we think about money, to being uh, dependent in prayer. We always talk about being bold in mission. It's on our banner, you know, like it's so in our DNA. Loving in service, overflowing with praise, want to praise God. The only way we think about doing those things, if we think about doing them as a response to grace. What you do does count in the sense we want to live for God. Not in the sense it's how we earn his favour and are saved. And so when we come, when we come to scripture, we don't come thinking, oh, far out, I don't read my Bible enough. I'm so rubbish at that. God's not happy with me. I should do more. I've had a talk that makes me feel guilty about the fact I haven't read it at all this week. And we go on and then we're becoming older brother-ish again. Whereas actually, we hear a talk on reading the scriptures and we realise God has told us so much about himself and about our relationship and he wants us to understand it more. Oh man, I should be reading the Bible more. It's just so much better for me. And all of us should just jump into it over and over and over again. Can you see that different mindset? That's the difference. That's the type of church that we want to continue to be. All of those things, living out grace, not slapping grace in the face. How great is it that the very thing that we could never do, earn favour with God, he has sought it out for us. Brothers and sisters, grace is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here as your people, wrestling with those times where we run off in our own ways or try and, in our own hearts, seek your favour. And we come before you now and we ask that grace will always be enough for us. We marvel at how much it took you, the cost that it took for you to save us. Help us never ever to leave grace behind. Help us to work at understanding it more and more for your glory as we long for our eternal home. Amen.